Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and this week I'm talking to the Garden Mama, author of many garden ide- gardening articles and books, and her real name, can I give it out? Oh, please. <laughs> her real name is Nellie Neal, and that's the name that she writes under. And you've got three re- recent releases from Cool Springs Press, and you've got a bunch of older ones too, don't you? Yes, I'm lucky enough that people still believe in books and keep buying them. So it's a wonderful (laughs) opportunity for somebody who always wanted to write, and I really enjoyed writing books. I enjoy that. Have you always been a gardener? Absolutely. One of my earliest memories, um, I had an opportunity in my childhood. My grandparents lived up the street from us, and my grandfather worked overnight as a train dispatcher. I was usually the one that was the first one there when he came out in the garden with his coffee. So he was, ah. he and I would, would do whatever it was he was doing. And one of the things I remember most that has so much to do with my organic perspective is watching him plant potatoes in February, which we do in the south because that's the best time to get them in the ground. But sometimes the ground is very, very wet. I remember being in a little pair of rain boots standing in the mud next to his raised bed back before they called it a raised bed he just called it the bed and the the soil in the bed was fine for planting but the soil we were standing in was just muddy and you couldn't have you couldn't have hoped for doing anything for months and i don't know how that made such an impression on me as a little girl but i was about four and i remember doing that with him and i remember the difference between those two kinds of dirt as we called it back then So I really have gardened all my life. I'm lucky that most of my family either had an appreciation for it or did it themselves, so I have had the opportunity. But then I went to college, and I I studied, so I literally learned everything about conventional gardening and farming after I had already learned how to do it without all that, because that's how he did it. It's a, it's a weird way to be, but nowadays most people are looking for sort of a middle path, and I, I try to tread that. And so how did you become a, a writer? I always wanted to be a writer, English major. Um, my first poem was published when I was eight. My, my first play, I wrote my first play when I was 12, and it was produced when I was 13. I've written training manuals and product instructions and just a world of grants and all of these kind of things because I always wanted to write about something I knew about and I had gardened all that through all of this and finally discovered the horticulture department at LSU and found my muse. How wonderful. Now, um, have you always lived and gardened in the South or have you been elsewhere? Most of the time I spent several years in Northern California and loved it very, very much, but I um, have, ha- have family here and have responsibilities here, so when it was opportune, I was able to come back down to the South and take care of business a little bit. That's kind of neat. Now, gardening in the South, though, does have some challenges, and you mentioned that you had grown up doing organic gardening when organic gardening wasn't called organic gardening. It was just what you did and what your grandfather did. And But when you were up at LSU, I don't know what year that was, but even when I first took master gardener training and then as a, a county program assistant uh, took agent trainings, 
we were told that organic gardening wasn't possible in the South. Oh, yeah. We were told that. We were also told, however, that nobody was going to grow camellias anymore because they had too many pests and they were too much trouble. Neither of those <laughs> things is true. <laughs> we have to I remember standing... This was in the 70s when I was at LSU, late uh-huh. 60s and 70s. And the it was sort of the peak of conventional agriculture and horticulture in the sense of you didn't think about much except what you could spray on it, all right? And mm-hmm. that's not a knock on them. That's just where they were. I learned a lot of other wonderful, brilliant things, including some organic techniques, but they didn't call it that because in those days, Everybody thought organic was tie-dyed shirts and, you know, hippies and that, this and that, <laughs> which, which it was, which was fine. Yes. Uh-huh. But it was also an opportunity for one of those hippie girls, not me, friend of mine, to get her master's degree and then go on and get her Ph.D., learning, teaching, exploring the concept of solarization for weed control. And we in the South have always known if the weed's too bad, just cover it up, and in about a year it'll go away, you know. Well, sure. this, is a more, this is a more functional process where we use clear 6 mil plastic on areas that are not in cultivation but have been run over by something like nutgrass or, or even three-seeded mercury sometimes. You know, there's just our, our common weeds. We can clear it. And, and she did the research at the university level. Her name's Anya Sprick. She did the research at the national at the, the university level and then at the national level that has really showed me that over time, even those guys that were into the conventional stuff were willing to listen, were willing to hear about it, and were willing. And, and that is why they do things like variety choice trials and opportunities to bring in new things as well as evaluate old things is to see how well they grow and you know trying to make sure that it's going to not be terribly fraught with difficulty, but nowadays, most of those programs are looking at organic alternatives because it's just too expensive anymore for them to spray every day or spray every week or run their businesses that way. That's a big break for us in the organic world. Yeah, because when it when the costs, your input costs exceed what you're going to get for your crop, that's kind of silly. And I suppose that yeah. some of the demand now is also because of consumer choice. Consumers very want much, very stuff much. that hasn't I, I am tickled pink, blue, and green at the idea that here in the Deep South, people are actually saying it matters to them, and we see it as a as really an international trend, but particularly in the South because we have such connections to our food that are generational. Now we want to know, well, where did it come from? Because we used to always know, and now we don't. And the, the good news is uh, between GMOs and labeling and everything, all the other issues that we face um, in, in the really – corporate agriculture as well as corporate food production, the organics are beginning to win in terms of people and what people want. Everybody wants to know, where did my food come from? What's in it? And you can only know that really when it comes to produce by growing it yourself. That's for sure, especially now that we are losing country of labeling. Exactly. Which really scares me because I know that some of the conditions in which organic food is grown in China, and I, I don't want it. 
Exactly, exactly. And the the other thing to remember is every product that is sold in America that is also sold in Europe, there is a different label, and you can look them up. The other label, their labels will tell you what has GMOs in it. Their labels will tell you everything about that product that we're no longer allowed to know. I consider it part of, frankly, um, there's not a word for this. I'm going to make it up. But the sheepification of the American people, in other words, look over here, don't look over there. Look at look at all this hoo-ha. Look at whatever your the politics or the scandals or the car wreck or whatever it is, but just don't look at the label on your food. Now, yeah. that's follow, follow the money, though. I'm, exactly. I'm a big fan of follow the money. Who is so who's right. donating to um, some of the organizations? And, and one of the horrifying things that I found out was that some of the what we consider small organic labels um, are actually owned by corporate giants who are fighting the GMO labeling. And for GMO, for people that are in the audience that don't know what it is, it's genetically modified organisms. And some people will say, well, man has been genetically modifying um, food all our lives or we wouldn't have modern-day corn or whatever. But they are, again, that's the sheepification of America. They're telling them that this equals that when genetically modified refers to adding a gene that doesn't belong like fish genes in corn and things like something like yeah. that. I am I am a scientist by training and by my heart as well as my head. My heart knows that if you don't know what's on the label you can't make an intelligent decision. My mind knows that too. And whether or not the process of genetic modification is good or bad depends obviously like anything else on how it is used. Um, somebody told me the other day that, you know, oh, love is everything. I said, well, yeah, until somebody beats you over the head with it, it is. You know? <laughs> and I don't mean to be ugly about that, but we can use anything to turn and twist. And what's happened, of course, is that we don't look at the ramifications. We don't look at what's next. We're, lo- we're seeing now that, unfortunately, the butterflies that are not supposed to be in the field with the genetically modified crop. Hello, are you going to stop the butterflies? Well, they're just not supposed to be there. They're affected, but they are uh, they are there. They were there first. And that's some of the issues that we're not really looking and dealing with because we don't do enough research before we put these things out there. For my own part, I just want to know, and then I will make my own decision. On whether exactly. I will buy something. Exactly. You know, Just sometimes I, 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 of course, it's really difficult to not buy anything with corn or soy or canola that's not genetically modified. That's right. That's uh, right. And, and that is a huge part of the American diet. It is. And we, we don't have any, we don't have the power as a society, we don't have the recognition as a society that, of how important this is. And so we continue to push against other things instead of getting to the basics. Just tell me where it's from. Tell me what it has in it and tell me so that I know possibly who the manufacturer is. I was just in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago visiting my son and we went to a wonderful small community market and, and you know, community garden and, and market at their place there. And every group of vegetables not only had the variety and the name of the grower, but also 
some more information if you were interested in reading it. And this goes all the way from the rices and the corn product that they had in there to the fresh tomatoes. And that's how it should be. Now, I'll grant you the prices maybe ran 10% higher than you would find somewhere else, but they were still not as high as the shishi, you know, organic markets. And they were not, I was not fearful of any of it. And I don't get fearful much, but I do wonder sometimes when things are so poorly labeled and you you have to really search for even the country of origin, much less who grew it, I think we've got some trouble and we have to pay more attention. We really do. I agree with you 100% on this one. We're going to have the to, take a to grow our own. Ve- the answer is to grow our own vegetables, and that's what we're going to talk about some more. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, but not everybody can grow everything. So we can talk a little bit when we come back about um, how people can choose what they grow and what is reasonably and what is reasonable to buy out in the store. You know, that might have a pesticide sprayed on it or or might not. We have to take a little break right now, but I want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back talking gardening right after this. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. I'm Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. I'll be hosting a new program here on America's Web Radio. We call it The Prologue. Now, you may not yet be familiar with me or my work, and that's the point of the whole show. There are many talented writers out there that you haven't heard of yet. Now, a prologue is an introduction to a piece of literature or perhaps music, and its intention is to hook you into the story or that piece of music. In today's cluttered world of new authors and books, it can be costly and time-consuming to sample everything that's out there. That's where my new show can help. I'll introduce you to the author and their book in an hour-long discussion that just might interest you and entertain you. We hope long enough that you'll want to buy the writer's book. So join me, won't you, right here starting June 12th and continuing on Fridays after that at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on America's Web Radio. That's the prologue with Doug Dahlgren. I look forward to meeting you. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is the garden mama, Nellie Neal, who's an author. And, and Nellie, you do your own radio show down there in Jackson, Mississippi, don't you? Yes. I'm lucky enough to um, have a Saturday morning live call-in program that is, fortunately for me, very well acceptable, but very well accepted and listened to. I, I have like 17 markets, I think it is. And then, of course, we have an app, Super Talk is the app. You can always come in on Saturday morning and listen and, and see what we're ranting and raving about. <laughs> it's not usually pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> I have not heard of that app before. I've always wanted to listen in on other radio hosts' radio shows, and 
of course, now there are a lot of podcasts like this one. Besides being aired the first time on Saturday morning, it will be available on podcast. Um, but I guess my first time hearing another person's radio show was when Felder Rushing and I, he was on my show and I was on his. And that was a hoot and a half. And I think it was yes, Felder who probably told me about you. Well, how wonderful. That's great. That, um, that Felder Rushing is an intergalactic, he's an intergalactic horticulture force. There's no question about it. <laughs> He is. Is he still in Jackson, or is he back in Europe, or what does he do now? I have no idea right now, but he's, his house is still a mile from mine up the street, and or half a mile, actually, if, if you depend on which way you walk. And, um, I, I know that, that he's, he's in town sometimes and, and in Europe a lot of the time. I don't know anything else. Yeah. I remember listening with rapt attention one time when he was explaining how to get to your, his front door. You have to touch a rope and things like that. Um, what yes. a hoot. Yes. Um, my garden's not quite that difficult to get into. You just have to navigate the driveway that is sort of a, well, it, it, it could have been a street in Dresden or somewhere like that that is in Tom. <laughs> It's a bad erosion problem. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Let's talk some more about gardening in the South, because, of course, we do have listeners in the South, and we have listeners as far up as Anchorage and and up in Canada. And what do you think is the biggest problem about gardening in the South? Well, our biggest problem overarching is that the ground never freezes and the bugs don't die. And that, in turn, leads us... Both The weather gives us a 12-month gardening season, but it is still fraught with challenges. You know? <laughs> so we are, we're always having a different pest outbreak um, or a different, fortunately, um, the ladybugs hatch, I don't even know, I think every month. You know? <laughs> it's oh, how cool. So, so we have both good and bad, but we have lots of it. And if you plant... For example, a flower that you saw in someone's garden in Missouri or even in South Carolina that's not on the coast, you're likely to see it run across your garden instead of staying in its place. We have rampant growth conditions, which is wonderful, but it's also quite a challenge at times. So you kind of have to pick your battles. <laughs> I have a friend who lives up north who said, who's always said when I talk about how nice it is in the south in the winter to be able to spend some days at least working out in your shirt sleeves and shorts. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I like the four seasons and I like winter. Well, this year she said, let me out of here. I can't stand winter anymore. <laughs> She said, I don't care if the winter kills off the bugs so I don't have to battle your creatures. She calls them our creatures. She said, just let me out of here. (laughs) Yeah, my niece lives in Boston, and she thought about coming home last winter, too. (laughs) It was tough all the way around. But the, the, the climate is changing. For people who deny this, I'm sorry. Just you need to study a little bit because it is, in fact, changing. Um, I'm not going to get into causalities because we don't have time this morning, but Human beings have a responsibility. If you want to go deep into the traditions of the South, we have we have a duty to be good stewards of our land and our earth and our seas and our environment. And unfortunately, there are things we cannot do anything about. We are now um, fast approaching 20 days 
above 95, numerous ones of those above 100. And we're not the only ones. That's not that uncommon for the deep south where I am. Unfortunately, it's happening in Oregon and places where it's not common for these these things to happen for so long. You might have a day, but instead they're having a week of really treacherous temperatures for them. And we're seeing all of those things. There was a two-hour tornado in Canada last week. I don't know when I've ever heard of a tornado in Canada, much less one that went on for that long. So gardeners have to adapt. If nothing else, we gardeners are adaptable, and that's the good news. (laughs) Yeah, gardeners are adaptable, but sometimes it gets really rough. I have a friend in Ireland who is almost exclusively gardening in high tunnels now. And I know a lot of organic gardeners here that are growing in high tunnels. Oh, just because when you get the deluges of rain that some areas have gotten um, and your crop gets wiped out by some kind of fungus or root rot, that's tough. And, and our seasons have changed. I remember when we first moved to Georgia, it would regularly get below zero here in the wintertime. And I can't rem- and, and our record low was 16 below here when it was eight below and twice, I think, in Atlanta. Um, but, but that hasn't happened in ages. Exactly. exactly. And not in the last decade anyway. And as these things change, it puts different stresses on the plants we grow. I really think it's important for people to kind of, I don't, I don't mean to just pick two or three things and not grow anything else, but in terms of supplementing what you might be able to find in the grocery store, we need to grow our seasonal crops, particularly in the south, and then provide them some shelter. For example, um, I'm a huge lettuce eater, eat lettuce virtually every day of my life, and it galls me when I have to buy it in July because there's no chance I can get any to grow (laughs) in my garden at this time of year. So we, we always have to look at what we can grow and when we can grow it and when it will make the most impact. There are wonderful lists out there of which plants, which food crops tend to hold on to the most pesticides if they are applied to them. Um, this is conventional pesticides. I'm not talking about organic remedies. That's a different, different discussion. But we, we do need to, re, to realize that, for example, very leafy things like lettuce and greens and kale will concentrate pesticides if they're used on them. And therefore, if they're easy to grow, we should grow them. Carrots is another thing. By the way, organically grown carrots from your own backyard, you you don't even know what carrots taste like or beets until you grow them in your own backyard or front yard. I don't care. (laughs) But but they're different. It's not only the number of miles they have to travel to where you are and the way that they're grown, but it's simply the the specificity of the time from harvest to eating. And we really can do better, all of us, in terms of providing some of these really important foods in our own gardens and just get away from the other issues altogether. Probably like farmer's market. We can always talk to the farmer at the farmer's market. And the farmers, um, you know, it's it's interesting. When I first moved to Georgia, I noticed that an awful lot of the farmers were just dumping seven all over their crops. The crops, the field, their fields would be just white, 
and they couldn't understand why they did that. And I would talk to them, and they said, well, that's the way we always did it. We used to use tobacco, but now we can't get that anymore. So, you know, they switched to seven. And, I, you know, I, I didn't have to use it. And I'm very pleased to see that not very many of them now are using synthetic pesticides. It makes my heart sing. Um, I really, I know I made the statement 20 years ago because people have reminded it, me of it that I believed that the carboreal, that the seven, would be the next thing to be taken off the market because it is so endemic and it, the 5% solution doesn't really work. They have a 10%. It's in, it, it used to be for really serious other problems, but then it got used everywhere all the time. The, the good news for us as organic folks is that it, it doesn't work anymore, and, and it costs a lot, and that's why they're not using it. So I'm happy about that. But I hate kind of like malathion for fly control, and it stopped working. Yeah. And we didn't have to smell it anymore. I have after, a list after, years of greenhouse, after years of working in greenhouses, um, I literally cannot be around malathion or the old diazinon. Those smells are things that will literally send me into a swoon. <laughs> you know, it's just yep. awful. Well, for me, too, I, you know, if I go into a hardware store and somebody mm-hmm. has bumped mm-hmm. a bag or if something has leaked a little bit, I, I go out, I have to leave immediately. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, at first I thought it was just psychological, but apparently, no, apparently you get very sensitized to it, and that's, that's a bad thing. So homeowners can grow, even apartment dwellers can grow, a lot of their own food. I'll put a list up. I've got a URL for a um, the, the, a list of the dirty pro- produce, the stuff that you really want to avoid if you can possibly do it. Strawberries is is one of them. They recommend that you buy organic rather than um, conventional strawberries because of the amount of pesticides they put on yep. it. But we grow you know, strawberries here in the south than anywhere else. We should we should be growing more of them. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And sometimes I have a little bit of problem with with disease, you know, if you have a really wet spring or with robins. When the Dutch boys were staying with us during the 96 Olympics here in Atlanta, they, I think they thought that they were staying with a crazy woman because I looked out my window, kitchen window and saw a robin stealing all of my berries very rapidly and went screaming out like I was going to murder oh, yeah. somebody. Oh yeah, they, they 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 see me coming because I'm so mad, <laughs> and and nets don't always work. But it does bring up the the other benefit of both high and low tunnels, and that is of course to exclude some of our pests. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that within five years, our southern growers who grow in high tunnels will also be having shade cloth that goes over them immediately in the summer, so and and down the front and back edges so that they can start getting away from things like squash vine borers and, you know, the other problems that we always have, and at the same time grow longer because we won't have quite such intense sunlight coming down on us. I do that a little bit now. Um, I'm, I'm, I've just pruned back the tomatoes that have filled my table all late May and, and all of June and most of July, and now we've cut back the ones that are not still producing they will go on and grow and, of course, become our fall crop. But that's the point where I have to do some more protection because uh, the heat on those semi-bare stems is tough. So 
So that's why I grow a lot of tomatoes in containers and just pull them into the shade for a week or two until they get started again. And then we're just off to the races. That's a good tip for our southern growers. I grow in a location that now has too much shade anyway, but I always had good afternoon shade. Um, and, and I think Very in the south that's really critical. Very important. It's why your mama wouldn't let you go to the swimming pool at 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> or to the beach. You know, when we, we would be at the beach every summer at my aunt's, you had to come in the house. You couldn't go out in the most intense of the sun. And we didn't know why, but we do now. We understand now that not only skin issues, but just boiling heat, your brain will fry. <laughs> so you have to get out of it. We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back talking more gardening right after this. This is Tracy Pearson at Prissy Tomboy. Are you looking for a way to inspire your pre-teen to teen girl to get outside and play? Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on America's Web Radio. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is the garden mama, Nellie Neal. And right before the break, we were talking about different ways of growing things and protecting things from the hot sun, which, you know, and I noticed, I've talked to some of my northern gardening friends, and they never had a problem with the high sun levels before. And I'm wondering whether, you know, it would be a problem for a few days, you know, just all, but I think all of the northern states get temperatures into the 90s and up around 100, even you know, even in Wisconsin and places like that. But I don't remember it ever being a problem. I gardened in Illinois when I was very young, and then in New Jersey for you know, 30 years, I guess, or close to 20 years maybe, and. It was never a problem, and I've been talking to some of my northern friends, and they say, you know, that they're having to give plants protection. It used to be that they would just, you know, when they put in their fall crops of broccoli and and cabbage and stuff like that, that they would have to protect the transplants for a few days. Mm-hmm. But like that's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Now I'm but, afraid, though, they've got so many challenging situations. My dear friend is gardens in the suburbs of Chicago. And it, she couldn't even get her tomatoes in. It, it rained too much, then there was no sun, then there was this and that, and then all of a sudden it turned off hot. Mm-hmm. And she she said, you know, she could see her tomatoes trying to grow and just struggling a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, well, when you go from waterlogged soil to very hot yeah. temperatures. But, you know, that we're seeing that with We're seeing that on figs and any number of other things that usually are ripening by now. They're, they're still hanging green and in some cases falling off the tree because they just, the weather was not right during their ripening time. We're also seeing it in tomatoes, of course, when we have cool conditions for tomatoes as they're forming, say, in, in April and May, they end up with hard insides. And it 
if the outside is perfect and has no blemishes on it that would indicate a stink bug has joined us, which is our other big threat in the summertime to tomatoes. But if, it, if that's not happening, it's really a weather condition. Um, I had a meeting with a farmer a few weeks back that had 200 tomato plants that were affected that way. And he planted literally at the same time he plants every year for 15 years. This year it turned out to be wet, 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 and not right conditions for tomatoes. So the fruit formed, but it formed badly. And we're seeing it a lot. Well, that's interesting. Here, what I'm seeing from a lot of people is because of our cool and wet spring, there's a lot of late blight. You know, people yes. think of late blight as being, you know, from the Pacific, a Pacific Northwest problem because they tend to have cooler and rainier springs. Um, and, and except for that one big massive outbreak um, here in, on the East Coast some years back, really it hasn't been much of an East Coast problem. And it's certainly late blight. I can remember only one other outbreak of late blight, and that was um, when over Fourth of July weekend I was working for Extension then, and we left for the Fourth. And I remember thinking, you know, well, this weekend is shot. I might as well find a good book because it was supposed to be cool and rainy. And I said the only thing that will be good for is watching the parade so we won't roast. But by the time we got back to the office just a couple of days later, the phones were ringing off the hook with people that said it looks like somebody uh, poured boiling motor used motor oil all over mm-hmm. the plants and they stank too not a good oh, yeah. thing not a good not thing a good, and, it, and unfortunately it will turn people off of gardening when they have a disaster like that that's why programs like yours and hopefully programs like mine and um, my garden mama facebook group that, that is they're hilarious. They're, they, they, we, you talk, we just had blight on coleus the other day. I mean, there's, there's problems all over the place, and we see most of them. <laughs> we do have some beautiful things, too. Don't, don't feel like you're only going in there for pest control. But it, it's, a, it's one of those things where gardeners really need to talk to each other and figure out who, what works for who and, and did this happen to you, too, because gardening's kind of a lonely thing if you think about it. A lot of times we do it because we want to get away from the noise and the clutter and the craziness of the world. And then we run into a problem and we go, well, who can I ask, you know, <laughs> because I'm out here by myself. Um, and that's really why the garden community, I think, is it's such a tight group. We have, you know, we all have friends that we made long ago that, that we're still close to, and we may not talk except when we have a problem or when we have an exciting flower to share or something like that, but... It is really a, an opportunity for us to get together, and that's, I really appreciate your podcast because of that. Well, it, I think that a lot of, especially new gardeners, think that they must be horrible gardeners. They must have a black thumb because, you know, this happened to their plants or that happened to their plants or something didn't flower. And, you know, I, I always keep reminding people about the old adage about you can tell the skill of the gardener by looking at their compost pile. How many plants have they killed over the years? Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. And I, I've got a giant compost pile, I'll tell you. Me too. Me too. Um, Big pile. But I also believe in volume gardening. And, and that means that if you want one plant, two or three, not necessarily mm-hmm. trees or shrubs, but perennials and annuals and vegetables, you have to start with a little more than you think you need because there, something is going to happen. And if it works out well, you always have something to share. 
Yeah, and that sharing is as much part of gardening, I'm con- convinced, as, as the eating it yourself. Uh, but, you know, even our old-time farmers knew that you would plant, you know, planting corn, you plant one for the cutworm, one for the crow, you know, yes. And, yes. and finally you get one to grow because something was going to get some of them. Yes, and in these days, I'm sure it's the same where you are, many of our threats are quite simply the creatures that we have displaced with either development or changing of roads or, you know, however you talk about it, our impact. We have deer in people's front yards when they wake up in the morning, which are maybe, oh, maybe a block from a busy street. I mean, I'm not talking rural areas. I'm talking about just suburbs. and. Mm -hmm. They're shocked, but but I always have to remember, remind people that when they first moved there, they wondered why they had crawfish in the yard, and that was, of course, because they had built homes in an area that used to be a wetland, and the crawfish made it where other things didn't. And I'm, I've become quite famous for my suggestions for crawfish gardening <laughs> because they send their you know they send their little chimneys up, and there's not much you can do about it, but you can enjoy it, you can appreciate it as a natural world. And, yeah, you can plant some more bog plants out there and really enjoy Louisiana iris and, and other things that you might not have a place for. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't please everybody. They just want to get rid of the crawfish. But when you move where the critters are, you're going to have the critters. I have squirrels. I have enough squirrels in my par- I have a, a little bit more than an acre with big oak trees, and I'm convinced that the squirrels are literally coming from Memphis on their way to New Orleans, but they all stop here. You know, they never have to get out of a tree between Memphis and New Orleans because we have so many. But they literally stop here because they think I'm amusing or something. I I don't know, but this is one of the... We had a really good mask year last year, and this year our squirrel population has exploded. I've I've never had a squirrel problem in the yard because I used to have dogs, one of which was a real good... Well, he could catch a rabbit. Um, and I also have stray cats that are in the yard that, you know, I get them vetted and give them rabies shots and stuff like that, and they just live out there, and they normally take care of the rodents. You know, I, I don't have a mole problem anymore, a chipmunk problem. They take care of that. And they normally had been taking care of the squirrels for me, too. And this year I have had squirrels climb up in my tomato cages. I have had them, one of them climbed up on my deck. I was waiting for dwarf barrel beauty, my first ever dwarf barrel beauty, to get ripe. And I was waiting just a little longer because, it's you know, it's up in the air and not, nobody's going to. And I went out and it, I looked at the plant and it wasn't there. Oh, no. And then I found it in the pot next to that plant all chewed up. Arr. Well, now, you the, squirrels and I have a, the squirrels and I have a relationship. Um, I actually collect squirrel sculpture and that sort of thing because I'm so in- intrigued with them. But I found that there was there can be a balance between mm-hmm. cats and small dogs on the ground and squirrels in the tree and birds over yonder somewhere. You know, it, they they. But you remove one. You remove unfortunately whatever the deterrent is, and they'll take yeah. over. Plus, when in a hot summer they're thirsty, they're trying. I mean, I get why they're looking for more to to tear up. Well, into. yeah, but I always put but, water out for the cats and the birds and the squirrels, so exactly. they don't have that they, excuse. They just go right past it. They go yep. right past it and head for my blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Now, tell me, you, you mentioned that, that some people have crawfish because they're built on a swamp. What kind of soil do you have? Do you have red clay, uh, black gumbo? Where I am, it's called Yazoo clay. It is, um, unfortunately, it's a clay that is so bad. How bad is it? It's so bad that when they build a road, they dig it all out and put in something else. Is that because it splits when it dries out? It cracks terribly? It's kind of like peat moss. If it gets too wet, it stays wet. If it gets too dry, it stays dry. And that's really tough, Um, we, we laugh. Every house in my neighborhood needs a set of floor jacks and a level because our houses shift. And, <laughs> oh, dear. And it's true. It, but it sounds... got, and on the other hand, it has every mineral that you need for gardening and tremendous water holding capacity. So I like when building a bed, uh, everything of mine is slightly above ground. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really believe in a little bit of the native soil and then some organic matters to improve it. I can grow anything, and I do think that the Yazoo clay helps because it has the qualities that I need in a native soil. I just don't want all of it for most yeah. things. We have red clay that's very similar, and when people yeah. despair about it, especially people from Illinois and places where, they're real, where there's real soil, I always tell them, look at those pine trees. They grow eight feet a year here. Nobody feeds them. It's just because the soil holds the moisture and the minerals for them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I used to dream of loam, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> like they have in the Midwest. I, I know nothing from no, from loam. <laughs> loam is wonderful. Yeah. Now, we, we're going to have to take a break in about a minute and a half, but I want to talk briefly, or get started talking about on the soil amendments that you like, because that's mm-hmm. really important to a lot of people. Well, compost first. If you're if you want to if you want to start something, just start with a pile of leaves and, and and ignore it behind your garage. In a year, you'll have some wonderful gardener's gold, you know, to put into your whether it's flower beds or uses mulch or improve something that you're you know you're trying to figure out why it won't grow. You need to give it a little compost. So I love compost. Um, I'm also very devoted to ground barks, and we're lucky in our part of the world um, that. There's so many opportunities. There's a lot of forestry. There's a lot of bark production. Um, obviously not into cypress bark or cypress mulch. We don't need to take down any more cypress trees. Thank you for very sure. much. But pine and, 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 and regular hardwoods are a resource and a tremendous, I mean, completely renewable resource, frankly, and one that we should use more of. I also like composted manures. Um, I'm a big fan of really just having a combination of organic matters because they're different particle sizes and they're different qualities combined to work better than just sticking one in there at all. You know, if you just dump in pine bark into your native soil, you may not get the same kind of result that you will if you use pine bark and compost and some kind of composted manure. We have to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about soil amendment because soil is the key to a gardener's soil. We'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Garden Mama Nellie Neal, and right before the break we were talking about soil amendments because no matter what kind of soil you grow on, except maybe Midwest loam, you really need to add some amendment either to sandy soil to get it to hold more moisture or with those of us that are um, blessed with clay soil to allow water to drain through. And You know, Nellie, when I was... When I was younger, I thought that we gardened on clay soil in New Jersey, and it was really a clay loam. And I found out what real clay was when I came down here, and and, oh, yes. and I went to plant, and the shovel bounced right off of the ground. Yep, and and jackhammer. Da- yeah. Well, my dad went went home for lunch because he was helping us move, and um, he brought back a pick saying, yeah. well, we, we'll be able to get through it with a pick. And I took the pick, and I grabbed it, and I swung it over my head and then down, and boing, it just, it was like something out of a, of a cartoon. I know. I know. I've, I've done that. Um, and, and sadly, some, the good news is that when we go to make a bed, we know to turn the water on and let it run for a day and then start digging, you know, when it dries out again, because we hit that point where we can't even work it. Right. That's good from the point of view of the forest floor and um, driveways that are in better shape than mine, and that sort of thing. You know, it makes it, it it does it does a good thing in that regard. But when we have that clay, think about those tiny, tiny little roots. Even a native plant that has been grown in a garden, you know, in a grower's nursery, so that you can put it in your yard, or one that has even been lifted from nature and put into your yard. That's a shock, and those little roots need some help in our part of the world, no matter what you're growing. It's particularly important for vegetables, though, because we want them. The the idea of thrifty growth is really a hallmark of both organic and conventional growing. That is, that the plant grows, adds leaves, proceeds in the method, in the manner that we would expect it to. In other words, it's not going to sit there for a week and not put on a new leaf, or shoot up wildly two feet at a time, you know, that, that can't be sustained. So we're looking for that middle ground for that thrifty growth, and we really get that with good soil. I, I truly believe, and I don't believe, I know, we have to feed the soil and then we feed the plants. Absolutely. And I don't like to use the word absolutely, but that is really <laughs> the truth. If we don't take care of our soil and nurture it, it cannot possibly nurture a nourishing garden for us. Yes. 
for more information, see the Dust Bowl. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah, that, you know, that's it, a shocker. It's a notion. In America, we really did you'd think that if this land played out, we could just move a few miles and start again. Luckily, we came to understand that that's not true, and the National Conservation Resource Service has been working since the 30s, the 1930s, to be sure that we all understand that. And we, the message is getting out. It's not getting out as fast as we'd like, but it certainly is. We're, we're, we know more than we did then. Yes. Well, you know, this country was so huge that when people moved out to the Midwest and then they found that they could make a lot of money growing wheat, um, you, you know, naturally they wanted to grow the most that they could. And mm-hmm. for those of you that aren't familiar with what we're talking about, it's the NPR um, PBS show, uh, The Dust Bowl. And that was, a, what, a three-parter? It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I I know about it, but I just, the Dust Bowl is an image from my childhood um, that, not that I was around then, but that I was taught about, which was part of why conservation was so important, soil conservation and and the the things that we learned as a result of that devastating experience. Um, Some people really think that that was just, you know, in in the movies, that that it was just... um, that the Okies, you know what I mean, going west. Sure. Somehow that was just a, a scene. That was reality. And that was reality for very far too many people. Need, we don't need that to create that. We can, in fact, fix it by doing proper soil care. Um, I don't want to rock off into the, the soil food web and all of those things because it's fascinating, but it takes a long time to talk about. However, there's more going on under your feet than there is on top of the soil. And, people, and there are more microbes in a chemical. Once you grasp that, then you'll, you'll work your soil in the way that it needs to be worked, and that is to improve it. Now, you mentioned ground hardwood bark, and I was always told that that's fine for a, that hardwood is fine for a mulch, but never for amending the soil because it takes, up the, it takes down the nitrogen when it's breaking up. Depends on how long it's been composted. Uh, so words, you're talking about composted ground bark. I'm talking about aged age products. Um, barks of all sorts have to be aged a little bit. And the, the same thing, of course, is true. Um, we, we have a product in the South called Gin Moat. It is the, 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 remedy, the leftovers from the cotton ginning process. Um, I don't use it myself, even though I recognize that they, people that test it test it to discover whether or not there are any defoliant chemicals left in it or anything, and they're not. They're able to certify those things. But it, it works like peat moss. For me, it gets too spongy, and it also stays gets too dry and cracks up. But those products also have to be composted. If you cut down a tree and you want to use those grindings and shavings, which I encourage people to do, you have to let them wait a year, just like you have to let chicken manure age or anything else, um, what happens is if you put the fresh products into the soil or on the, around the plant as mulch, the, the plant immediate, the soil rather, immediately tries to compensate for that. And the way it compensates is by giving up its nutrients and water to this process that is basically decomposition that has not gone on far enough. So those materials are not, they're too fresh. They're too green, if you want to say. It's not the, they're not green in color. 
but they're just too fresh. And what happens is they, in turn, suck all the nitrogen out of the plant. You'll see it when you see someone whose tomatoes are absolutely yellow and they have been, the, the plants are stunted maybe two feet tall instead of three or four, and they have been sitting there in the same soil and being fertilized and being watered, and they just keep getting yellower and yellower. And when you investigate, generally it's, well, my friend gave me some manure from his barn and I put it in the soil. Well, if you did that only three months before you planted, then that's trying to use up all the available nitrogen in order for it to compost and age. So it's all a balance. All of gardening is really a balance between what you want to grow, what you can grow, um, when you're going to do it, and how you're going to do it. And we really have to compost everything before we put it in the soil. Thank you for bringing that up. It's important. And people that garden in balconies and things like that don't realize that they can still compost. They can, oh, get, a, they can get a worm bin, or love, even love, when love, I was love. living in a when I was living in an apartment, I would all during the winter time, fall and winter, I would take my sort of unused flower pots, things that you know I'd cropped already, and I would just dig a little hole and then. Whatever kitchen scraps I had, I would run them through the blender and then just pour it in a little hole and mm-hmm. cover it up and, yep. and just Absolutely. kind of go around clockwise around the around the pot. And by springtime, it was broken down enough so that the you know that I could plant into it. Mm-hmm. It was ready to use. Um, I'm also in favor of rinsing out eggshells and crushing them. You can just put them into the containers just as they are. And, of course, coffee grounds, one of my favorites because I'm a big coffee drinker. Um, always useful. Always useful. But don't try to use coffee grounds as mulch. I discovered that no, if no. you do that, it makes an impenetrable barrier, moisture barrier. When it rains, <laughs> nothing happens. Been there, done yeah, that. Gotta, gotta poke a hole in there and put it down in the soil. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is the kind of stuff that new gardeners don't know, and then when something happens, they find out. You know, they they think that they're at fault, and they're not really. It's just exactly. that you, you don't know to answer how to even the questions to ask sometimes when you get started. And I didn't know, for example, until I was talking to Jacqueline Soul a couple of weeks ago for the show that in her area you don't ever dare put put eggshells in the soil because their soil is already so alkaline. Right. Right. Here in the South, we need that help, <laughs> but not everyone does. Most of the South, because I understand that there are some parts of the South that are actually fairly, have, have fairly alkaline soil. Uh, we, of course, have very acidic soil. Um, when I used to work for Extension, sometimes we'd get uh, pH reports, soil test reports back with a pH of like 4.3. That's yep. practically vinegar. <laughs> yep. And that, of no. course, is another reason why we don't use as much pine bark as we might want to. Or, or that we combine that with some lime to sweeten it up a little bit, as they say. I've never had any problem with pine bark applied as a mulch like that. Um, and usually when things compost, they, they end up pretty close to neutral. But if you're pushing the, you know, trying to push it to get your garden going, I can see where that would be important. And I do want to encourage everybody, where, no matter where you're gardening, get a soil test. Find out what your nutrient levels are and your pH levels are, because if your pH is too low or too high, you can throw all the fertilizer in the world on there, and it's not going to help. And if you're throwing fertilizer on and it's not necessary, you're polluting. You're polluting, and you're also, in, in most cases in the South, you're building up 
levels of phosphorus and potassium that your plant can't possibly use, so you're also throwing money out the door. Um, you, it, it, you, it really is important to know what, what it needs and also to, to be aware that your, your soil itself is one thing. The soil you amend may have a different pH, so sometimes we need to test those raised beds after a few years just to make sure that things are still going like we think they are. Yeah, I, when I work for extension, I would often have people come and they would have built raised beds, but they put all organic matter in it and not enough soil. And then they wondered why their plants were kind of puny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was just simply because there was some decomposition still going on. Any water that they put on it, you know, and they had to water pretty much every day because there wasn't anything like the clay to hold the moisture. Right. And right. The, any fertilizer that was there was just washing out. That's also why bagged soils, even when they're they're labeled organic and they're they smell wonderful and they look good, but when you're putting them into the container, you need to be aware that we do have heavy rains at times. Some of your plants are going to need a lot of water, and those soils can get very saturated. Many or most of them will have moisture-holding polymers in them. So that's another reason for using some organic matter like ground bark, even in a container soil. Um, I, I really am devoted to, I love that there's so many wonderful garden soils, potting soils, all that sort of thing out there, but frankly, none of them are suitable all by themselves for southern conditions in, in containers or much less raised beds. I, after reading Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott on polymers and what their breakdown in, in products. It's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> it's very scary, and I no longer recommend to any of my clients or my listeners or my readers to use that stuff. When it first well, came out, I thought, hey, this is people, great. But. I would certainly prefer that people don't. I mean, there's some rare situations like growing in an atrium and that sort of thing where you're, you, you may need that, but in our gardens, we don't. Unfortunately, people don't necessarily see that on the label or they'll buy it because it's a good price I generally feel like cheaper potting mixes are better because then they don't have the moisture beads in it and we can in turn amend them a little bit more effectively it turns out to be a cheaper 30 gallon pot you know if if you'll do it do some of it yourself this is all the time that we have for today, but I want to let everybody know that you can reach Nellie at GardenMama.com, and I will put her website up and the information about the dirty dozen foods that you really should buy organic and up right up on our Facebook page. So if you haven't been there, please visit us on Facebook, and we'll be back right after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org 
or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.